here in Ireland, everybody remembers Daniel Tomofte, and it's in my DNA, it's in his DNA. And I don't mind people talking about it, to be honest, as a good memory. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode. Now, Frank Rainey is with us, Newsweek Core correspondent, um, to bring us the latest on the Regency trial. Uh, it's been a while since you were with us last. Uh, where are we at the moment? Well, at the moment, the court isn't actually sitting and won't sit again until Friday because over the past few days, there has been a lot of legal argument over the admissibility of a secretly recorded conversation between Jonathan Dowdall and Jerry Hutch as they travelled to Northern Ireland on a date in March of 2016, roughly about one month after the shooting at the Regency Hotel. Now, There were 420 hours secretly recorded by the Garda National Surveillance Unit. They didn't play all of those in court. They were across, I think, five different dates. But the court is only concerned with one date, the 7th of March 2016. And I suppose they played roughly about 10 hours over the course of a few days in the Special Criminal Court and the defence is challenging the admissibility of the evidence as a whole. It's also challenging the admissibility specifically of the evidence after the vehicle, Jonathan Dowdall's vehicle, which had been bugged um, after it crossed the border. They're right. challenging extraterritoriality in relation to, to that. So there, there is a lot at stake here with this evidence. Um And we won't find out until Friday whether or not all of it will be allowed, will be considered inadmissible, or whether portions, specifically the recordings, after they cross the border will be allowed into evidence. All right, this is really interesting. So, um, because it's the Special Criminal Court, obviously, they play the stuff, the judges listen to it, and then they decide whether or not they're going to take it into consideration, as opposed to if there was a jury trial there, the jury wouldn't have heard it in the first place, or maybe they would have heard it and then they would have been told, disregard that. Which I always find a bit like, yeah, yeah, yeah. make me forget the thing. This isn't, this isn't Men in Black, you know, I can't just... Oh. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that. Um, yeah, it's a funny one. I mean, the recordings certainly wouldn't. If there was an issue with the recordings, and clearly there is, and if this was being held before the Central Criminal Court, for example, where there would be a jury, you're right to say that these recordings certainly wouldn't have been played for the jury because they would have all ultimately been the judges of fact. So the judges have decided to listen to them, but I mean, bef- long before the recordings were played in the courtroom, the issue was flagged. The defence said that they were challenging the admissibility of it, and the court decided to listen to them uh, in their entirety and I did wonder that very same question myself that when they retire to their chambers and if they do decide to discount we'll say eight hours of the evidence heard after they cross the border I mean how do you just suddenly forget that but I mean judges are the best judges of fact um, so perhaps that's an easier task than it is for mere mortals like myself Yeah it's really interesting um, and uh, so they're at the moment deciding amongst themselves kind of the way the Supreme Court would go off and like can then come back and uh, announce and then that's like a massive moment in the trial because obviously we know what's in the what's what's been in the uh, tapes has been recorded sorry broadcast in the court and reported on mm-hmm. and there's no reporting restrictions no right so we might know this stuff and then 
might also know that it has not been allowed to be considered. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you and I won't be making a decision on Jerry Hutch's fate. And I suppose we should point out that he is on trial for murder. Yeah. He is on trial for the murder of, of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel, that shooting at that boxing event back in 2016. He has clearly pleaded not guilty. So whatever about the reportage around the recordings and the legal argument that has taken place over the past few days and you know how the judges arrive at their decision. And I have no doubt that it will be a very detailed ruling when they deliver their judgment on Friday. It's going to set a precedent, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it will. Um, It has huge implications for trials going forward. It has huge implications for prosecutions and investigations going forward. Because of the nature of the work of um, an organisation like the Garda National Surveillance Unit, we're not privy to the dark arts of how they surveil potential suspects. Okay, so we haven't been told how the tracker was placed and there was a tracker and a bug placed on Jonathan Dowdall's Toyota Land Cruiser. We weren't given any details as to how they were placed, who placed them, for obvious reasons because I mean they're the secrets of the trade and and whatnot. But what this judgment will decide once and for all is whether or not an audio device attached to a car that leaves the jurisdiction, in this case Northern Ireland, whether that evidence can actually be used at trial, whether it can be used by an investigation team, as was the case here. The defence certainly seems to think that they can't. On the other hand, the prosecution claims that this bugging device that was put on the vehicle is an inanimate, movable object, and that as long as it was placed on the vehicle in In the the Republic of Ireland and then taken off the vehicle again in the Republic of Ireland and downloaded on this side of the border that it's okay. Now, again, they didn't go into the intricate details of the tracker or the bug, but I think it's akin to something. I don't know if you're a Breaking Bad fan, but I'm currently re-watching it myself, and there is um, a very famous scene where Walter White places um, a tracker on Gus Fring's car. He has to take it off and, and download it onto a computer then. And it sounds kind of similar. I yeah. mean, they weren't able to listen to the conversations that they were having live. It all had to be downloaded Afterwards. and then played in five-minute um, intervals. And that was played, you know, in its entirety. Well, 10 hours of it was played in its entirety in court. Is, is that decision then, Frank, that's to be made on the admissibility of the recordings, is that are they essentially deciding their interpretation of this surveillance act or are they deciding specifics around this case? The act has certainly featured because that's obviously what the Garda National Surveillance Unit would have had to operate under. You know, before 2009, when that act was brought into legislation or brought into effect, took legal effect, I mean, the landscape was was very, very different. When it comes to and would have been particularly used in cases where there were like was dissident threat or, you know, operations focusing on, on, on that level of like paramilitary activity and, and whatnot, this is gangland related, at least that's the allegation. I mean, the whole reason that Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall were travelling to the north on the 7th of March 2016, according to the prosecution, was to meet with Republican contacts of Jonathan Dowdall with a view to maybe mediate or broker a peace deal with um, the Kinnahans, who, you know, the Hutches were in the beginnings of what would be a very bloody feud. That part of it all seemed remarkable, didn't it? That whole kind of conversation about uh, we're going to uh, try and get somebody to broker peace, but at the same time, uh, the assassins who killed my brother will have to go and 
you know, maybe the people who did the Regency murder will also have to go. But that's the price of peace seemed to be. I, was that just from reading it? Was, did that come across in court? Yeah. Um, Jerry Hutch could be heard on the recording um, saying that he wanted peace and that it was in the Kinahan's best interest as well. Um, and, and again, this was just a few weeks after his brother, as you say, uh, Eddie Neddy Hutch, was killed just a few days after the Regency shooting. He was shot dead at his home in Dublin's north inner city. Um, he said that it was in the best interests of all parties for a ceasefire. Now, interestingly, we heard this meeting took place um, in Northern Ireland with three men in a lane. It didn't take very long. Um, a Northern accent comes into the recording at one point when they pull up and they've arrived at their destination. And then you can hear the men getting out of the car and their silence for a few minutes. They return to the car. This Northern accent is there again. And on the way back to Ireland then on that homeward journey, um, Jerry Hutch is just thinking about that meeting and he's wondering if the Republicans are going to maybe potentially play both sides. So all of this was going on uh, in his heads, in his head. But he certainly said at one point that he didn't want any more innocent lives uh, to die. There was a lot of chat about yokes, which um, I understand to be street slang for ecstasy. Um, and in fact, there was a moment during the car journey and the radio could be heard blaring and they, were, they seemed to be changing the stations quite a bit because at one point there was a long stretch where there was classical music being played. Right. They, were listening to the, <laughs> they were listening to the news. Um, and, and Did at you one appear point, at any stage? No, no, I didn't. And I, I was waiting. No, I didn't. Um, everything but the girl, you know, that oh, yeah. tune missing from from the 1990s that came on at one point and you hear the banter then where Jerry Hutch can be saying to Dowd oh come on we'll go and get a couple of E's and there's a lot of laughter so I mean the conversation the topics of conversation really varied I mean they talked specifically about the guard investigation in relation to what happened at the Regency Hotel Jerry Hutch could be heard saying that he didn't think that the guards had anything um, and, and at one point ironically enough as well there was a conversation about secure phone lines about anti-bugging devices uh, Jerry Hutch accepted that the guards probably had bugged a lot of places on the back of what happened at, at the Regency Hotel and then Jonathan Dowd always asking him if he'd have any concerns about his home being bugged if he'd any use for an anti-bugging device a device that would be able to tell if he was being uh, recorded and uh, Jerry Hutch funnily enough said no little did he or Jonathan Dowd all know at that point that their Jeep had actually been bugged Did they also uh, predict that a load of mistakes had already been made or did they also assert that a load of mistakes had already been made in the investigation into um, the Regency? Uh, yes, uh, F-ups um, were, was the word that Jerry used to describe the, the guard investigation. Um, we know from our previous conversation on the show that three men dressed as Gardaí holding AK-47s stormed the boxing event at the Regency Hotel. But there were also two other gunmen, a man that we now know to be the deceased dissident Republican, Kevin Murray, uh, who was wearing a flat cap and has been described throughout the trial as flat cap. And there was also a man dressed as a woman wearing a wig um, um, both of them had had handguns and there was a getaway driver. So six people in, in total in this um, hit team. And uh, Jerry Hutch could be saying that uh, they didn't know who the six were. And he said, sure, the six don't even know who the others are. But then specifically in relation to Flat Cap and the man dressed as a woman, he did remark on a photograph that was published in the Sunday World. This was a photograph that was taken by a very brave photographer who was working on behalf of the newspaper that day of uh, Flat Cap and the man dresses a woman with their uh, handguns clearly visible in their hands fleeing the Regency Hotel in the aftermath uh, of the shooting. And Jerry Hutch is talking to Jonathan Dowd all about that and he said that 
they would be 100% certain who the people in that photograph were, but everything else was speculation, according to Jerry Hutch. Do we know, Frank, from the nature of the, those recorded conversations, exactly what they wanted from the Republican meeting? Did they want protection from the Kinnahans? Did they want negotiations in a peace deal or was it exchange of weapons? Do we know nature of what they were exactly up there for? It, it, it seemed to be, and it's the prosecution's case, the reason they travelled there was to broker a peace deal. Um, you may remember from an earlier appearance on the show where I was discussing the prosecution's opening speech and Sean Galan, the prosecuting barrister, said that in due course Jonathan Dowdall will take the stand and give evidence to say that in the weeks after the shooting he met with Jerry Hutch in a park in Whitehall in Dublin and he will claim that Jerry Hutch told him that he was a part of the hit team that hit team obviously was the one that stormed the Regency Hotel and shot David Byrne a known kin and associate dead so Jerry Hutch apparently and again this is evidence that Jonathan Dowdle has yet to give but in the prosecutor's opening address he said that Jonathan Dowdle will give evidence that Jerry Hutch then wanted him to bring him to Northern Ireland to meet with his Republican contacts. We know um, Jonathan Dowdle was obviously a Sinn Féin councillor in in the past, he no longer is um, and he wasn't at the time but we heard that this meeting was apparently to broker a peace deal. But Jerry Hutch was a little bit concerned leaving it. And he talked about the strength of the Kinahan organised crime organisation. He described them as akin to an effing army. And there was a discussion whereby they were talking about, I suppose, you know, the previous history of the Republican armed movement and how there was a sense that the Kinahans had actually become bigger. And there was a concern that perhaps, you know, the power that these groups would have had in Northern Ireland in the past to broker a deal like that, maybe they didn't have that same strength because the Kinahans had gone on to become this effing army, as they said in this recorded conversation. And Jonathan Dowdall did ask how they had got so big. You know, this was two brothers and a father and that was a reference to Christy Kinahan, Christy Kinahan Jr. And Daniel Kinahan, Daniel Kinahan, who founded the boxing promotion group, the gym, uh, MGM, and he has been described before the High Court in Ireland as one of the leading members of the Kinahan cartel. And there's a conversation about how they got so big and Jerry said, you know, that it was about the young fellas, using the young fellas. And Jonathan Dowdle said, it's about money, isn't it? It's about greed. And Jerry Hutch took a moment and he said, you know, yes, it's about money, but it's not all about money. It's about power, too. So there was a conversation and an acceptance that the Kinahan crime organisation was getting bigger. And you have to remember the time and the space that this conversation took place in. Again, just one month after the Regency Hotel, we had a nephew of Jerry Hutch's who was murdered in Spain uh, the previous year. And there is... Um, there is speculation that the Regency Hotel was carried out in retaliation for that. Again, David Byrne being a known Canaan associate. A few days later, you had Jerry Hutch's own brother being murdered and the very next gangland hit would take place, I think, just two weeks after a friend of Jerry Hutch's was shot dead. So, you know, obviously, whatever the purpose of this journey was, if it was to broker a peace deal, we now know, and hindsight is twenty twenty. we now know that it clearly wasn't work. very successful. So Jonathan Dettles up next week. Jonathan Dowdall, we expect, is going to take the stand next week. Um, that would be, I suppose, the way the trial is tracking. We'll have this judgment on Friday morning where they're going to give that ruling on the admissibility of this evidence. And all going according to plan, Jonathan Dowdall is likely to take the stand next week at some point. Um, when we had you in originally, you were like, this could go into the new year. It looks like it's going to go well into the new year at this point, does it? I think so. I think Jonathan Dowdall, I mean, clearly he is the prosecution's key witness because he is going to, according to Sean Galan's opening speech, give that evidence in relation to Jerry Hutch that would clearly be contested so 
you know, what are the main takeaways from that, um, from listening to those recordings for days on end was that Jerry Hutch is a man of very few words. The same cannot be said for Jonathan Dowdall. He filled every silence with banter, with nonsense, with chat about Conor McGregor, you know, with chat about asking Jerry Hutch who his favourite celebrity is. Imelda May is his favourite singer, by the way, if you're, if you're interested. So Jonathan Dowdall is a talker. Um, it'll be very different, obviously, sitting in the witness box at the Special Criminal Court, uh, giving evidence against yeah. um, Jerry Hutch. And another thing, you know, that was interesting towards the end of their recorded conversation when they came back to Ireland and he dropped uh, Jerry Hutch off was that he was saying to Jerry as they were bidding farewell to one another, you know, that he was with him until the death. Those were Jonathan Dowdall's exact words and it's now interesting that he is likely to give evidence against him. And there was also quite a touching moment between them as they went their separate ways where Jonathan Dowdall asked Jerry after he got out of the car to drop him a text when he got home just to make sure that he was okay. So Jonathan Dowdall, if he gives his evidence next week, you would assume that he will be cross-examined at length by Jerry Hutch's defence barrister, Brendan Gren, and we will bring you that word for word. It's like if um, Samuel Beckett wrote The Wire. That's kind of what's happening, except it's all real and it's about a murder trial. It's the um, it, it's grimly fascinating. Uh, before we let you go, mm-hmm. currently riding high in the podcast charts. Yeah, busiest, busiest man in Ireland. Yeah, no, it's it's been great. Um, the Charles Self murder is the focus of season two of Inside the Crime, and very very early on, within a week, we we were top of the. Christmas tree so to speak Um, the feedback has been brilliant this is an unsolved crime so I think people are really interested in trying to figure out who did it you know Charles Self was murdered 40 years ago now he was an openly gay man in a country where you know it was a hostile country to live in Ireland in the 1980s because what a lot of people and this is something that's been really interesting is particularly a lot of young people don't realise that in the 1980s you know gay sex was illegal and you could go to prison for it and people were prosecuted for it and gay Charles or uh, Charles Self was an openly gay man um, we don't know why he was killed we pulled the threads at a lot of the evidence there are five episodes the last one of which is out next Tuesday and it promises to be a cracker and uh, and it is if you don't mind me just doing doing a plug because the producer Ashley Moore and I have set up um, a dedicated email for people who maybe know something because we are convinced that somebody out there knows something that could bring Charles Self's killer um, out of the shadows. So we've set up an email address inside the crime at newstalk.com because we feel that there were people certainly back in the 1980s who may have had information and were fearful of coming forward for fear of exposing themselves as a gay man and for fear of potentially being prosecuted. So there was a reluctance maybe to cooperate with Gardaí within the gay community, uh, rightly or wrongly, back in the 1980s. And if that still is the case, and we do still say, by the way, that the first port of call should be on Garda Shiakana because it's certainly a very different police force now than it was 40 years ago. The Garda Confidential Line is 1800 treble 6 treble 1 and that should absolutely be the first port of call. But if you know, 40 years on, people are still reluctant to go down that route. Come to us, you know, we'll follow leads and we'll pass them on to the guards accordingly. And absolutely. It's a great piece of work. You should be rightly very proud of it, Frank. Thanks a million for joining us. Called Inside the Crime. You should subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Good stuff, Frank. Thanks a million. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode.